I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999. Podcast like it. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 99 from behind a movie screen on stage here in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And back with us is Brian Cogman from Hello. Game of Thrones, <laughs> from our episode on ER, from 16 where episodes of the Screen Drafts <laughs> podcast. <laughs> from- <laughs> Not quite, but we're we're getting there. One of the we're getting close. One of the great guest fans of all time, and an occasional guest commissioner. <laughs> indeed, I, indeed. As you can tell, I, I found a, I found a lucrative side career. I've recently <laughs> taken drafts. a deep dive into the Screen Drafts podcast. Yeah. Um, if anyone's wondering how my development deals are going, <laughs> check how many times I'm available for Screen Drafts. Well, we're really happy you're available for podcasts like it's 1999 again. We loved having you last time, and we really wanted to talk with you about a movie. Um, And you chose this movie, Mm. Cradle Will Rock. Tim Robbins directed this movie, um, came out in 1999, obviously. kind of. It's an interesting movie in that um, Phil said right before we got on, it doesn't really exist. And I honestly (laughs) did not know what this movie was about before doing research for this year. Outside of, of course, mm. as I mentioned last episode, it did make the um, it did make the National Board of Reviews top ten, along with nine oh. other eminent. 1999- really, it made the it made the top ten of the nineteen ninety nine. That's extraordinary. It was surprising, but uh, yeah. but there is something there. So, um, what I'm uh, what I'm interested in is Ryan. What about this movie spoke to you? Why did you want to do it? You um. 
You could have done well, whatever you funny. wanted. Uh, <laughs> 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 a man of a man I really of your felt, I, really, <laughs> I really just felt I needed to bring a little culture to this podcast, you guys. That's, <laughs> that question. Um, no, uh, truly. Uh, so it's a complicated answer. The, I'll start with just uh, you know we've talked about coming back on, on the show. There's actually another movie that we had talked about me coming back to do, mm-hmm. but then um, uh, Phil just sent the list again, just for good measure. And the title jumped out at me and uh, it struck me as a movie that uh, I really wanted to talk about specifically because of what is going on right now. Um, and also a few things that have been going on with me personally in terms of kind of reexamining uh, different parts of, of my life. So I'll keep this very brief because your listeners, I think, are already going to sleep. But uh, I trained as a... Untrue. I'm, yeah, I'm captivated. I, I trained as a classical actor at Juilliard in New York 20-some-odd uh, years ago. And uh, that uh, department, the drama department, was founded by the great John Houseman, who is a major character in Cradle of Rock. Um, and so I'm probably one of the few people who eagerly went opening night to see this in a theater um, because this was in the middle of my time at Juilliard where it was all classical theater all the time. And this was Orson Welles and John Houseman and this famous uh, incident in, in uh, theater history that we'll, we'll get into as we talk about the, the movie. And so I saw it and I remember uh, intensely disliking some of it and being rather indifferent to the rest of it. Um, it did, did not land with me. It was a big kind of, this is the big Oscar movie folks. It was, had a huge marketing push and it was Tim Robbins's follow-up to uh, dead man walking. And it was this incredible all-star cast. And, uh, and it was really kind of being poised to be the, the great movie. Anyway, the great artistic movie of that year, not to mention it, it was supposed to scratch every itch that I had. Um, but I really didn't, didn't care for it. And frankly, barely thought about it in the 20 years since, but, uh, the title popping up and, on the list really made me sit back and go, huh, uh, 20 years ago, there was a $36 million movie released by Disney about socialism and the theater set in the yeah. 1930s. And that would never happen now. I mean, that's an understatement to say it would never happen now. Yeah. Um, and I just, as I saw the, the words cradle of rock on your little list in the email, I was just sort of flooded with this kind of intense desire to watch it again, because uh, I thought is, could, could this be a, a situation of, we really didn't appreciate what we had because I'm finding that a lot. I'm finding that I'm revisiting a lot of movies from this era when I was an up my own ass drama student. And when you're, when you're a drama student, especially at fucking Juilliard, you're hypercritical of every performance you watch. <laughs> so my initial memory of most of the movies released between 1997 and 2001 are, oh, that movie wasn't any good. And then I'll watch it and go, this is a fantastic movie. What the fuck is wrong with you? If this came out, to, if this came out today, you would, you would be like, how, how is this possible? They don't make movies like this anymore. So I'm kind of going back and rewatching a lot of stuff um, and reappraising things. So anyway, I, I felt uh, it would be important to do that. And also I, it will hopefully spur a discussion about the state of the, the, the dire state of the arts in this country, particularly the theatrical arts, uh, particularly in the time of COVID and the, and the age of Trump. So it seemed, it seemed like a timely uh, choice um, uh, to talk about sort of the, the way the industry has evolved and also what's going on in the theater. So that's why I wanted to, to watch it. 
Yeah, I mean, I I remember similarly to you this being sort of touted as his follow up to Dead Man Walking, Tim Robbins' follow up. It was an Oscar player, or people thought that this oh, was yeah. going to be a big Oscar movie. I mean, it comes out December tenth, right in that corridor of like. You know, we want to make sure it's remembered by the time they have to do their their ballots. Um, and then it just disappeared without a trace. It, it didn't even make really an impression when it when it landed. I, I the reviews were mediocre. I didn't see yeah. it in the theater. Uh, this was the first time I watched it the other day. Um, and it's like it's, it's 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 not a bad movie. And we'll get into sort of the the whole, you know, into the the um, the guts of it. But I just was sort of like amazed that it existed amazed yeah. that that Tim Robbins cashed his blank check on this movie mm-hmm. um, and that the bounce was so severe he has not directed a film since right mm-hmm. right that that can't be That's a crazy. coincidence you <laughs> no, know I, 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 I suspect if it was a smash hit we would have seen more more films by Tim Robbins who knows if that's true but I don't even know that it needed to be a smash hit it just would have been nice any, if it yeah. broke even because it was like, a Bomb! It would it it, yes. it cost thirty six million dollars to make, which thirty six million dollars is a lot of money anyway. But in nineteen ninety nine, that's a very uh, 60, budget. 60, yeah. 65, something. And like I think that. it I think it made something like two. Made nine point nine. Yeah. 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 yeah, you know, I mean, but filmmakers weather things like this all the time. My my yep. sense is he probably didn't want to, and he probably didn't have a good experience. And mm, yeah, and this is also, it seems. And I might be wrong. This seems like it's uh, above his abilities as a director. Um, I was just going to say. Dead Man Walking is naturalistic. It's basically two characters. It's not particularly striking visually. Uh, It it, it is emotionally impactful. I think Dead Man Walking is a a very strong film. Oh, yeah. It's a terrific movie. It is, but it doesn't take – it's not a director's film. It's not an auteur's film. Um, And this could have been – this there 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 could have been a more stylized approach to this movie um that would have been a little less <sighs> kitchen sinky for one because I do feel like yes. there's way too much in it yes and yes. a little less uh studio glossy mm. um, yeah yeah the, the sense I got was there was so much there there were so many scenes in it that didn't have a turn that were just mm-hmm. there to yeah. showcase a location or showcase a particular character or showcase some something in the movie that really didn't have anything to do with anything else and uh just strictly on a was this a captivating compelling movie um it it was not for me until the last half an hour so hmm. i I, I just wanted to um, just to rewind <clears throat> real quick to the to the Dead Man Walking of it all because there's a part of me that thinks that like Dead Man Walking feels like um, uh, an actor's directing vehicle, right? Which is that it's very sort of as you said, it's it's Susan Sarandon, it's Sean Penn, it's an opportunity mm-hmm. for these two people to showcase their abilities. He's clearly very good at directing actors. Yeah, it's a natural um, actor turned director kind of thing. I remember yeah. when that. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it definitely feels like, um, I remember in 95, that was a big movie. 95 was also the same year of Braveheart, another actor turned director vehicle with, 
the the scope that that it seems they like from actor directors you know your dances with wolves your what have you's of like the big fucking epic thing whatever um whereas tim robbins does the small thing and then does this movie and to your point kenny bites off more than he can chew i would just say keeping i would just yeah. just, just cut it real fast sometimes right to the mel gibson yes yes kevin costner point sometimes you know robert redford won an oscar for ordinary people and that's small yeah uh, against raging bull which is, you know, obviously yep. an epic movie. Well, and Costner won an Oscar against uh, Goodfellas, too. Yes, Costner right. won an Oscar against Goodfellas, <laughs> yeah. too. So it's, I don't, I, I don't think that 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 people thought Robbins. I'm not saying you're saying this. I don't think they think he did a bad job. I thought people thought he that was incredible. Um, I also think Tim Robbins had a different kind of um, persona than a Mel Gibson or a Kevin Costner. He, for sure, he wasn't for sure. even really yeah. like. I mean, he was in Shawshank, of course, but we all know the story of Shawshank. It took right. a couple years for that to grow, and he was, you know, in yeah. Bull Durham, and he played a lot of supporting roles. But there was this idea from the beginning with Tim Robbins that there was more there. I mean, he directed mm-hmm. Bob Roberts, which is a pretty good movie. So yeah, the, he's got the player as well, which is you know a few years yeah. earlier too. I think there was this idea that there was more there, and I think Dances with Wolves hit. Like I'm not Dances. Sorry, Dead Man yeah. Walking hit really, really. Dead Man Walking hit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's, I, I think he's a, I do think he's an interesting, he's got an interesting career. He's done a bunch of movies that I love. Um, he's done a bunch of movies that I just don't particularly care about. Um, I think that with this movie in particular, in terms of the, the, the swing going from Dead Man Walking to this film, and Kenny and I, we texted about this a little bit, but, and I'm, I'm very curious on your thoughts about this, Brian. The ensemble. The idea of doing something with this many characters, mm-hmm. keeping all those balls in the air, is very, very hard to do. Oh, yeah. Especially when it's historical on top of that. So yes. you have to track all this history that you might not know on top of trying to figure out what everybody's goals are and what everybody's trying to do. Um, and then on top of it, you've got politics. Like this movie is really trying to do a lot. Yeah. Um, it, it's a very ambitious movie and it's, it's admir- ad- ad- admirably. So I, I, I think I'm a lot more forgiving of this one than you guys are, but it may be because I had my initial eh, reaction 20 years ago. Yes, 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 yes. And then now I watch it. And, and so I was, a, I have actually a lot more affection for this movie um, now and on this subsequent watch, but I agree. He wanted to, I think he wanted to make a very big swing and make an enormous statement about every facet of the arts and arts funding and rehearsal and the creative process and, uh, history and these portrait of these great men, and you know, particularly Orson Welles. Um, and I, I don't, two hours can't contain that much. Even I think with the best filmmaker, I was thinking to myself, "Ooh, this would have been a, this would if this had gotten the kind of modern day sort of miniseries treatment, you could have really delved into each of these stories." Mm-hmm. Um, because maybe we should talk. I mean, should we say what what the plot of the movie is? Yeah, let me, let me let me give the let, let me give the synopsis yeah. real quick. That might be easier to talk about that then. haven't seen it, which is most people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> As labor strikes break down throughout the country, New York is alive with cultural revolution. Nelson Rockefeller, played by John Cusack, commissions Mexican artist Diego Rivera, played by Ruben Blades, to paint the lobby of Rockefeller Center, while Italian propagandist Margarita Safati, uh, played by 
Susan Sarandon sells Da Vinci's to fund the Mussolini war effort, and Orson Welles, played by Angus uh, McFadden, directs an infamous stage production of The Cradle Will Rock, closed down on the eve of its opening by U.S. soldiers. It's written and directed by Tim Robbins. It was released on December 10th, 1999, in limited release against The Green Mile uh, and Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. <laughs> <laughs> It would go on to make $2.9 million on a $36 million budget. It's got 64% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 71% from audiences. Yeah. Um, let me just very quickly read um, a portion of Roger Ebert's three and a half at a four-star review, which I think helps uh, lay yeah. the groundwork as well. Um, uh, it was a time when the rich flirted with communists and fascists, when the poor stood in breadlines, when the class divided in America came closer to the boil than ever before or since. The 1930s were a decade where the Depression put millions of work and government programs were started to create jobs. One of them was the Federal Theater Project, which funded free theater for the people all over the country, but was suspected by U.S. representatives of harboring left-wing influences. Since the last right-wing theater uh, was in ancient Greece, this was a reasonable suspicion. <laughs> Tim Robbins' sweeping, ambitious film, Cradle Will Rock, is a chronicle of that time knitting together stories and characters both real and fictional in a way similar to the novel USA. It tells the story of the production of Mark Blitzstein's class-conscious musical, The Credible Rock. Its opening has been called the most extraordinary night in the history of American theater. Intercut with that production are stories about Nelson Rockefeller, Diego Rivera, uh, William Randall Hearst, Gray Mathers, who brought uh, Renaissance masterpieces secretly from Mussolini, helped to finance Italian fascism. We meet theatrical giants Orson Welles, John Houseman, and little people like the homeless Olive Stanton, who eventually sang the opening song to Cradle, and Tommy Crickshaw, played by Bill Murray. A ventriloquist so conflicted yeah. that he helps a young clerk, John Cusack, rehearse her red beating <laughs> testimony while it's his tummy sings. Like you're just it, that's, that's it's the, true. That that's it's, that's it's bursting that, with stuff. That perfectly conveyed yeah. it. And and here's the thing: taken all on their own, there are a lot of really wonder, wonderful performances. Correct. Compelling scenes, uh, thrilling and moving sequences, great bits of comedy, um, but. I think by the end of it, because there's so much and he had to, and he tried to cram so much in as much as I, and I, I, Kenny, I, I guess we, we part here. I was really enjoying it as I was watching it, but then at the end, I wasn't feeling what I needed to feel. And I think it's because you're just, you're just getting too many bursts and you're never sitting with enough with any of these characters for long enough to really engage with them. Um, but then, but then again, there are some individual scenes that are absolutely breathtaking. There's this beautiful scene where Emily Watson's character, Olive Stanton, is in line to try to lie herself into getting a job with the Federal Theater Project. That's a wonderful little five, you know, uh, two three minute scene with two world class actors, mm-hmm. her and Joan Cusack, and it's the movie's full of that. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I'm not exactly sure. Apart from the arts are important, we have to. Uh, we have to take care of them and the American system is corrupt. Uh, Apart from that, I don't really know what else it's trying to say. And I, maybe that's enough. And I think that's where I, that's where I sort of have affection for this movie is, you know what? It may not be the most profound statement about any of this stuff. It may not be the most nuanced portrayal of all of these characters, but I'm glad it exists because it sure as fuck won't ever. again. (laughs) All that being, all that's true. So, it's we we run into this uh every once in a while where a movie says something that's really important and kind of under under said in culture 
right? Under uttered yeah. in culture. Yeah. And yet it, it says it in such a way that we don't really connect with it the way you might with another film. So uh, yeah. the way I look at this film is it's all text, no subtext. Everything is told. Everything is, 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 is it's very broad, Listen, right in the context. Yeah. And even in the characterization of these, of these characters, um, you know, exactly who the yeah. good guys are exactly who the bad guys are. Um, even, you know, Joan Cusack's character could have had a little more nuance. I felt, you know, very little nuance, uh, there. I didn't feel any real conflict. I really, you know, kind of felt like she just represented the bad guys. Um, yeah, and she's more there to service Bill Murray's story, who I think actually gives maybe the best performance in the movie. Yeah, Bill no, Murray, he's, as the he's great. Really great. I'm not totally convinced we needed his character, but he's oh great. no, I don't think we did. But there I is, think he's telling. There's a movie to make about that guy. I, absolutely, I think there's something but, to that character. I'll get to in in, in yeah. a second. Um, but yeah, I think it's all text. I think it. I think it's heart and minder in the right place. I don't think it's telling us anything we don't already know. Uh, I yeah. do think, however, that the story of, you know, kind of the Red Scare before World War II is a very undertold story in Hollywood. I think there is, there is a kind of belief that we were kind of simpatico with the Russians up until, you know, the Cold War after World War II. And I think that's an interesting idea knowing, you know, about what a threat people thought communism was before mm-hmm. World War II to the point that they would destroy careers like that. Um, I do think there was an interesting parallel with the Bill Murray character and the uh, and the Joan Cusack character to what's happening today, which is the mm. oppressors, who they are, mm-hmm. act as if they are the oppressed. Yes. And they have their little secret society of, you know, oppressors, a secret society of people trying to stomp out creative expression, freedom of speech uh, and act as if they're the ones who don't have it. Yeah, and that, yeah, absolutely. That is what is happening right now that has that, that has the most insidious effect on discourse. The most insidious yeah. effect, the idea that, you know, that people who have literally no barriers for their freedom of speech, except for maybe they'll get fired if they use the N-word. Um mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Right, like yeah. a hard maybe on that. Um yeah act as if they're the ones who are oppressed. And I, it was interesting seeing that in 1999 about a story in the thirties. So. Yes, indeed. I, yeah. I also, um, just, just for a second, because you know, you have a theater background, Brian. Yeah. So I, I want to sort of explore that for a second and just say the theater stuff worked really well for me. Me too. If the movie <laughs> was just about the it's theater just stuff, about, the production of Cradle of Rock. Yes. It would have been fun. I think it could That's have been actually it, great. That's what I wish it was. Me too. And, 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 you know, a little, so trivia, trivia time, uh, Orson Welles, yes. Orson Welles is one of his final completed screenplays was a screenplay, which is available. And I, I tried to get a copy of it, uh, before we started, but it's, it, you can get it on Amazon, but it's, um, but it takes a few weeks to get, but it's a screenplay called the Cradle of Rock. And it is about the making. It is about this story. Uh, it, it, he he was set to direct it. He cast a 21 year old Rupert Everett to play him to play Wells. This Amazing. is in 1984. Wow! And he died in 1985. So never got it off the ground. The screenplay is published. I've never read it. I've seen excerpts of it from um, from some books I've read about Wells. The best of which, little plug. Um, if you, if anyone's interested in Orson Wells, there's a three volume, soon to be four volume, exhaustive 
incredible uh, biography by um, the actor Simon Callow, who you'd know from all kinds of films. He's mm-hmm. most notably the, the, the gentleman who dies in Four Weddings and a Funeral, mm-hmm. but he's, he's <laughs> oh, okay. the, sure, sure. And the master of rebels in Shakespeare in Love. And he's one of the great British actors and a great writer. And, and actually, we've become good friends in the last couple of years. Um, but he wrote his first volume is called Orson Welles' The Road to Xanadu. And it's all about Orson Welles and the Federal Theater Project and these productions and tells a, an amazing account of this story. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's interested in this stuff to, to read yeah, it. That if actually, you're not interested funny. in learning about Orson Welles, what are you doing listening to this podcast? Like, well, that's true. <laughs> at, this point, you've, at this point, you've turned it off. Yeah, but you, no, not even this episode. Just what are you yeah, doing? Like, like, what made, yeah, what yeah. made you get into film? You fucking weirdo. Yeah, well, like, there you like, go. Why are you here? Um, but, um, but, but yeah, so, so, uh, there's a, there's a movie that he wrote about that. And I'm sure it's very slanted to his point of view. Um, and probably, but, but, uh, I would have, I, I found myself to your point, Phil, yeah, craving that when watching it because, um, because the piece itself is actually a really beautiful and arresting uh, piece of musical theater. I, there's a really great cast recording of it that you can get on iTunes or even listen to on Apple music. Um, that Patti Lapone is in of the 1985 uh, acting company production. Um, and because you don't really get a sense of what the show is in the movie because it's so fragmented, it, it, frankly, the show I think comes off as a little, I mean, it is, it is a sort of uh, broad, cheesy political thing anyway. Not subtle. <laughs> Not subtle, but it really, really doesn't uh, have the effect it, it needs to have because you haven't really been in. I mean, you see a, a those com- those weird little scenes of Blitzstein uh, mm-hmm. composing Magic it. Magic realism of him. Like- Matt, yeah, right, where he's haunted by the ghost of his wife and, and the ghost of Bertolt Brecht, even though Brecht is alive at the time. So that's <laughs> <laughs> um, So it's like a ghost and a memory. I don't know. Um, all of that, like, again, Hank Azaria playing this artist trying to compose this thing. Yeah, I'd love that movie. Uh, Diego Rivera partying with Frida Kahlo and, and, and I'd love that movie. But the problem is there's nine movies. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause like, as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself that like, this is obviously a fascinating moment in time. There are all yeah. of these things all happening at the same time. The, the miscalculation that Tim Robbins makes is that each of them deserved actual screen time. Like yeah. all of this existing and making a statement with a light touch Knowing all of these planets are sort of all kind of happening at the same time is is fascinating. Yeah. You don't need to cut to them though. Like no. just feeling the weight of them and all these things in history, this moment in history, that's enough. And it's not enough to him, and it hurts the film. I wonder mm-hmm. if he was afraid of. Let me take this a step back. In the Nelson Rockefeller Diego Rivera plot line. Mm-hmm. The lines are very clear who the bad guy and the good guy is, right? Oh yeah, yeah. That's and that's yeah. that's obvious. And you have you know, Nelson Nelson Rockefeller at the end destroys beautiful art because it doesn't. And sadly, there's no dramatic tension as a result no, for nothing. that very reason. And yeah, there, yeah, yeah. And he destroys the beautiful art, you know, because it doesn't vibe with his own personal yeah. like kind of politics or you know feelings of like you know, sanctity of capitalism. Um, and that's kind of a little boring. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact is in the end of the day cradle will rock was shut down because the union bowed to the pressure from the government yeah and i wonder if that ultimately was a story that he wasn't comfortable telling on its own 
Um, I think that's a very interesting. Yeah, because you know, yeah. that makes sense. Because because there's a lot of gray there that is not explored. No. The fact that the the actors' union and the musicians' union sided with. You know, I, the government. And I get that they and, were cowed, yeah. but like I would have liked to sure. seen that, right? So be Yeah. Be, because it's it's antithetical to what the, 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 the show within a show is about, and it's kind of antithetical mm-hmm. to what the movement was about. Um but there is like a pretty easy line to draw that, you know, once you get a certain amount of power, as union heads get a certain amount of power, because they do hint at that at one point, but union heads get a certain about amount of power, they're corruptible too. And they're the ones who, are, who also have constituents who they can then threaten with, you know, in this case, losing their jobs and livelihoods if they're not true yeah. to the cause. Because ultimately, if you really think about it, the people at the end of the day who were who were have, who were, who were kind of getting, you know, a boot rammed up their ass were the unions, right? That's mm-hmm. that when John Turturro and Emily Watson got up, the the, the people who were threatening them were the unions. So that is a story I'm not totally sure tim robbins wanted to put at the forefront but it does kind of take take you to the other point which is i agree with you guys completely the theater stuff is incredibly riveting but i don't think it was very clear what the stakes of this particular show were oh i completely agree yeah i agree completely agree and i think if we focused it like you kind of alluded to brian on blitzstein Mm -hmm. and his personal stakes and how important it was for him to get this Mm -hmm. piece out in front of the public Whoever mm-hmm. was against that, whether it's the government or whether it's the unions or, or anybody who is, a, who is a party to that, therefore is your antagonist. And then we could have had some, you know, we could have been on the ride with him because you felt nothing when. Well, when yeah. And apart thing. from and apart from the very first moments of the movie, which are very effective, it's actually a very beautiful opening when when uh, Olive Stanton is cool. uh, sleeping in the theater and opens it wakes up behind the screen and. But apart from that moment where she tries, where she says, "I'll sing for for, for some money to a guy in the street," yes. you get no sense of the Great Depression at all. None. You don't get any sense of what the musical is about if, that they're doing. Doesn't it feel so? No, no, it's fine. It's in fact, you get more inside uh, Philip Baker Hall and Vanessa Redgrave's sort of. Totally. You know, and, and by the way, I will say Vanessa Redgrave is such a fucking hoot in this yeah. movie. She's, I love her performance in this movie. I don't know but, what Giamatti's um, doing, but she's having a good. Yeah, that's that's a strange performance, but that, that that actually speaks to the tone of the movie. Is there's this really broad kind of we're doing a musical sort of style to yep. a lot of the performances that I can only think. Robbins was encouraging and maybe look, maybe he thought, my God, I'm doing a movie about socialism and the theater. It needs to be fun. It needs to be snappy. It needs to be funny, which I get. Yeah. Uh, but some of those scenes are so broad, like as you said earlier, Kenny, uh, uh, Ruben Blades and John Cusack, both phenomenal actors, but they are playing caricatures. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm Nelson Rockefeller. Let's uh, Rockefeller Center. And Ruben Blades, <laughs> I'm an artist. <laughs> and, and Frida Kahlo is a sight gag. And, even, yeah. you know, and they didn't have the cuts so, to give her unibrow. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. It's, it's quite up. Give her the unibrow. So, so those scenes are sort of fun. Those are sort of fun and broad and, and almost like a like a Damon Runyon kind of musical. Mm-hmm. But then you'll get some really be- – I mean, Emily Watson is doing very beautiful internal subtle work. And yeah. t- actually, Totoro and Watson, I think, fare the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in those uh, the, in those uh, rehearsal scenes – and this is, this is the thing I remember being violently angry about as a young, earnest drama student. And being less violently angry but still angry about is they get Orson Welles so wrong – 
god. So wrong. For one thing, Orson Welles was 21 and Angus McFadden was pushing 40. So that's, and you know, Houseman was 10 years older than him and it was a sort of weird mentor protege dysfunctional brother relationship. That was Carrie Elwes' character? Yeah, Carrie Elwes was John Houseman. He was so much fun. I mean, he was fun, but again, yes, taken taken on its face that they're a funny little Statler and Waldorf mm-hmm. duo, it works. Yeah. But yeah. when you and and if, and if you're coming at it not really knowing much about them, yeah, it works, it's fine. But there's so much more to explore there. And if you, as we've said a few times now, just concentrated on the production, yeah. you could have really explored that partnership slash rivalry that is so much deeper than "I hate you, I hate you, I'm never working with you again" kind of Muppet. Uh, banter that they have um there was a lot going on there and a lot of the gray stuff that you're talking about because while the the legend of all of this is that orson wells and john houseman you know they 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 defied censorship and they did their show yes they did but they were also thinking about themselves they loved the publicity yeah it made you know they and 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 true story two days later they bought the show back and it was and it was staged commercially. They they got it away from the right. Federal Theater Project. Federal Theater Project, you know, folded because they were their one of their highest profile uh, participants. So there's a lot of gray and a lot of yeah, a lot less goodbye guy, guy bad guy in the real story. Now, fine, Robbins wanted to make a statement, and and he does. But I just I longed because there was so much good material there and so much wonderful production values. I, I just I longed for the meteor stuff. But the, thing, well, the thing you talked about what, with Orson Welles real fast, Phil, the thing you talked about with Orson Welles in terms of him actually being a 21-year-old, I looked that up too, right? He famously made uh, Citizen Kane when he was 24. Um, yeah. So, And this was in 37, three years before that or four years before that. Um, Incredible. So yeah, he's 21 <laughs> years old. And what a missed opportunity yeah. to, tell, yeah. uh, to tell a story that you don't ever see. Of like right about him about a, about about him, but about a twenty one year old given all this power and control and how yeah. and how he handled that and that would and I'm not like that like that's not a situation where I'm pitching for a different version of the movie. I'm just pitching for a little more focus on a character who's incredibly yes. compelling. So yeah, well, and and just to turn him into a blowhard, just to turn him yeah. into a caricature, right. um, which he and was, a, and he a was, drunk. But there was a lot. He was a blowhard. He was a drunk, but he was also yes, no, a lot of other things that he's there's not. A lot more. It's a lot more yeah. interesting like, if he's a 21 year old blowhard and drunk too, because you 100 percent for sure. Yeah, the, the the age the age is what's so strange. It's like it's like 1964 Orson Welles wandered into this movie set in the 30s. It's very strange. Um, but you know, but I, again, I keep coming back to it, it, it's still. I still have a lot of affection for the movie. <laughs> like, like, well, I, 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 what I was going to say earlier before, uh, before Kenny made his point, um, and a valid one, obviously, um, is that one of the things that I was thinking about as I was watching this was Magnolia. Oh, I was sure. thinking about like other ensembles, other big character pieces. And the reason that they work, and a lot of them are Altman's, but still, the reason that they work is because 
you understand the emotional current and the emotional goal of the characters. And the theater stuff is so much more emotional yes. than the political stuff that's going on. And the politics and the history muddles it. So you kind of get lost in all of it. Like yeah. Magnolia is obviously a masterpiece and we will talk about it at some point. But one of the reasons it, it works so well is because you care about all of those characters. You understand where all of them are. You have this condensed timeline of it all taking place in 24 hours. Like it just, that's kind of the only way to do something like this with a mm-hmm. canvas this big and with this many characters. And it's it's unfortunate that he kind of has all these dalliances with other things that he can't seem to focus on mm-hmm. quite frankly the most interesting and most emotionally resonant part of it i wanted to ask you a question yes since we're on the theater part of it please favorite movie about theater topsy-turvy 1999 from 1999 when, when i almost pitched doing that one <laughs> but i but i thought this had a little more political relevance topsy-turvy is the best movie about the about the theater it's so good oh, wow. I, my, mine and i love topsy-turvy uh, i have the criterion yeah. and I, i've been i've been holding off on watching it until we do it it's um I, I really love and i i certainly don't want to open the pandora's box on this but i do love bullets over broadway um i think that's oh, bullets great over broadway is great the bullets over broadway is fantastic mine's a movie <laughs> i've never seen but i assume it's my favorite <laughs> It's a play. I've, uh, yeah. It's a play I've seen a bunch of times. I don't know if the movie's any Topsy good. Topsy Turvy. You know, I'll I'll let you get someone else to talk about it on the show. But it's it's the best movie about the, about the theater. But I um, no no. But I'm serious. Mine mine. The movie I want to talk about is not a movie, but it's a play. Uh, the best piece of art about theater I've seen is Noises Off. Noises Off. Oh, is, sure, yeah. is the most fun play imaginable. Yeah, it's a pretty decent movie too. Peter Bogdanovich did a pretty decent movie of it. Did he? I mean, as best, it, as best you can. As I mean, that is so meant for it's a stage, so but stage dependent. It's, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, well, what's great about Topsy Turvy is, and I I will say <laughs> I will let you all talk do your episode, but it it speaks to why it speaks to what's lacking in Cradle of Rock is the sense of um, the real sense of what it is of what it's like in rehearsal and the real sense of discovering a piece and. It actually covers a lot of the same ground in some ways as this does in terms of uh, a show from from conception to to the end. Mm-hmm. It's just that, as we've said, I mean, we're just saying the same thing over and over. And over. <laughs> if you if you had more time, you could really convey that. And so what happens is it's very broad, and you've got like you know uh, two of the uh, there's a couple fucking in the corner because actors were all bohemians and yeah, I don't know, um, uh, but. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it, it was it was it was interesting to it was it was fun to watch because I've just I've had a lot of personal associations with with people who knew Houseman and with uh, you know I was a member of the acting company after I left Juilliard and that's the company that Houseman founded and there was always for decades there was sort of an ownership of Cradle War Rock thing between Orson Welles acolytes and John Houseman acolytes and because <laughs> Welles and Houseman after they parted ways uh, only a couple of years after the events of this movie were sort of bitter rivals and always trying to one up each other and always trying to discount each other's contributions to that part of the career. And so, you know, that cradle will rock the movie, the, the ill-fated movie was meant to be um, Wells's stake that, that he's sure, the one sure. that did it. And then a year later, the acting company stages the first major production <laughs> of it, which of course, reclaims it for houseman um so that's kind of a fun little that's little really funny theater tidbit but um but yeah it's uh it's i'd be really interested to see it on the stage it's almost always staged in the manner that happened 
because of the circumstances. If you go generally any production that, that is done of it, it's the actors in the audience and there's Mm -hmm. just a piano and, and all of that. I think that, you know, um, there are a handful of performances that I kind of wanted to dig into a little bit because yeah. I feel like um, they're interesting moments in their career. I mean, Emily Watson spends 99 covered in soot, it seems. Angela's ashes in this movie. She just oh, wow. she just spends the being poor and sad. Which this is was peak Emily Watson right? time, too, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. It is. Like yeah. The boxer and uh, Hillary yeah, and yeah. Jackie. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. man. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then Kenny and I have texted about this, but Cherry Jones is oh, so good in this. Unbelievable. I love Cherry Jones. Yeah. See, that was another thing, the theater nerd in me, because Cherry Jones is the grand dame of the American theater. Um, but in 99, this was, I believe, her first major film role. She's, really? She, she wow. turned up, you know, in things. But yeah. but as to my to my memory, while she was a star of the stage, she wasn't making movies where she was on equal footing with, with John Cusack or Bill Murray or anybody else. So I remember... Theater. Ge- I remember the trailer of this movie. I actually yeah. remember the trailer of this movie vividly because it excited me so much. And there was Cherry <laughs> Jones playing Hallie Flanagan, and I was the one kid in the audience <laughs> <laughs> who knew who the fuck that was. <laughs> oh, they're finally they're finally doing something with Hallie Flanagan, <laughs> who is who is also a woman who should have her own movie yeah, made about her. Like, yeah. You know. So, uh, um, so I remember being so excited that, and she is, she's fantastic in it. I mean, she's, yeah, she's my, she really embodies her so well. I, I think I've told this on the podcast before, but I, I think it's relevant right now. Uh, I was once at a concert and I think it was at the bowl and it was like, uh, I don't know who it was like Radiohead or some shit. And I'm sitting there and on the screen, they showed an advertisement for Rufus Wayne, Rain Wainwright singing Judy Garland. And one of the friends yeah. I was with turned to me and he get, says, you know, for one person out there, this is their exact Venn diagram. This is the <laughs> oh, thing yeah. they have. Probably more than one. <laughs> That's, yes. For, but this is the thing they have always wanted. Finally. So, like, every once in a while, something will happen. That's a Judy Garland, Rufus, Rufus Wainwright for me. Like, once, you know, like, I love Tom Stoppard and I love Pink Floyd. And Tom Stoppard wrote a big article in Rolling Stone about Pink Floyd. I'm oh, like, <laughs> look at this Judy Garland movie. <laughs> so there's a very Judy Garland Rufus Wainwright out of with what you just said with Cherry Jones. Oh yeah, playing well, that, Hallie that Flanagan. Was, You're just like that was both the, of them. Well, that was the like, huh? <laughs> 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 Rolling. No, it's true. It's true, and that was that was this movie in general at the time because you know when you're at juilliard it's houseman houseman you know the great john houseman mm-hmm. who founded the school and we all came up under him and so you hear about him constantly and 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 all of yeah. it and, and you know brecht and and i mean yeah for me it was catnip i mean I, i'm the guy who when i when shakespeare and love came out the previous year when you know that little street urchin is revealed to be uh the jacobean playwright john webster <laughs> i was the guy in the audience going <laughs> He's he's a psychotic, and he's John Webster who wrote the uh, Duchess of Mouth. I'll see myself out. Um, but you know, again, we didn't appreciate what we had. I, that was a major motion picture that that kept the John Webster joke in the movie for the one guy in the audience. That's important. Which is so, kind of, which I guess is this movie. That's important. <laughs> so I, it is important. I think that it is. yeah, I think it is important. I think all right. So I think yeah. thinking about uh, why. And, and Phil, we left out the best uh, the best film about 
Broadway or whatever is all that all that jazz is clearly the best. But oh, it's oh, I love all um, that jazz. Yeah, and all that jazz is like the best film ever made. But all that it's jazz, phenomenal. All and that I, jazz. I thank is, you again for for buying course, that Criterion for me. The best. Yeah, great. Oh, oh, that's a nice gift, Kenny. Well, I mean, I love him. You're a good friend. That's it's, a great movie. It's yeah. about one man, right? So it's very easy. Uh, it's not easy, obviously, but 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 it's very clear for a uh, an audience member to find their way through that POV. This is going to sound kind yeah, who's, of who's the POV in this movie? That's, that's what I'm getting question. at. Yeah, so it, it, yeah. There's, a, there's several. I mean, it's, it's just, an you know, ensemble. Yeah. So what yeah. what I'm what I'm getting at is the ensemble pictures that work, the Robert Altman's or yeah. Magnolia or whatever, um, are not plotty like this. This is too plot heavy for me. Oh, not plotty. Oh, that's this is too plotty. I think mm-hmm. when almost necessarily an ensemble is a slice of life. Right. Mm. right. Um, well, that's, that's, yeah. So I, I mm-hmm. think that they've conflated. I think, frankly, I think Robin's conflated uh, two ideas that aren't really compatible. Um, yeah. Ultimately. And I think that's where we've got kind of lost here because, yeah, I mean the Altman movies, like I'm not the biggest Altman fan in the world because like I struggle without plot. Like I struggle. I, I, even as a writer, like I find my character through plot, right? Like I like to give my characters decisions and then figure out what they'll do. Uh, right. So I struggle to latch on to some stuff in some Altman movies, more, you know, the, the ensemble pieces, the Nashville's and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, you, your, your characters have to be unbelievably compelling to make that work. And I don't think that these characters are compelling enough Obviously, in real life, they were, but I don't think the characters on the screen are compelling enough to carry it. And I don't think the plot helps. I think I think the the plottiness of this movie necessarily feels like it's been short shrifted because we're going from mm. A to B to C to D to E, uh, yeah. getting lost throughout. That that's what it feels like to me. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I, I, that's I, fair. I, yeah it's again. I, I know that just just to be clear, like. There's a lot of good things about this movie, and I, I hate that we are kind of ragging on the things that, that don't work. I kind of, and, and honestly, like, I did work. not hate this movie at all. But yeah, I did. I didn't hate it either. Yeah, no, um, I, so I'm, I, and I'm, and I'll say this for it, and I do think this is the fact that we can have this discussion. That this movie strives to bring these things to light. That it's taking these swings. That it's doing these things. I commend him for doing this. Yes, I'm, I am happy that this movie exists. I don't think it's a failure. Um, I think it's a noble failure, and I think it's a thing that I think we can all agree could have been something truly great and, yeah. and just never fully gets there. Um, I want to just uh, pivot to another thing that this movie talks about, mm-hmm. um, which uh, Tim Robbins was interviewed around the time the film came out. Um, so just let me very briefly read this, uh, this quote. Uh, the interviewer asked him, uh, another of the issues in Cradle Rock concerns censorship, the censorship related to the hearings in Washington about the Federal Theater, and then Rockefeller's censorship of Diego Rivera's work. How do you think this is an important issue today? And Robin said, most importantly, self-censorship. It relates to how the environment of the time can cause people to censor themselves. And that's why when they, the actors, stand up at the end, it's a real celebration of freedom because they're not censoring themselves. They're taking a chance. They're taking a risk and they're exercising their rights within a democracy, which is very difficult at times. There's always going to be overt censorship in society. Look what's happening now with the first targets of the Columbine massacre, the Internet 
video games, movies, etc. He hmm. then goes on, and I'm not going to read this part because I don't know that it's really helpful, but he then goes yeah. on to basically <laughs> talk about how uh, these kids did this because they're on antidepressants. Uh, oh, so okay. well, he, really, he really drops off a cliff oh, when Tim. it comes to making a connection between the war in Kosovo and antidepressants. But we'll put that aside. Well, yeah, the, the censorship other, thing I want to someone is He's yeah. obviously someone who's never had to deal with depression. Well, the... Well, the uh, I remember at the time, uh, it, and I remember thinking when I saw the film, the last shot. So the last shot of the movie uh, is is the sort of the sort of funeral for the Federal Theater Project and Jack Black. Tenacious D's in this movie. <laughs> 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 Tenacious D playing budding ventriloquists. It's, I mean, that's a movie in and of itself. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and that's just a year before Jack Black burst in on, yep. with the uh, high fidelity. High um, and I think Jack Black and maybe Kyle Gass were members of Robbins's theater company that he had in, in the actors mm-hmm. gang. Yes, yes. I think, uh, because I believe he's in Bob Robbins as well. But anyway, Jack Black and, uh, Kyle Gass and the, and, and Paul Giamatti for, for some yeah. reason, his character finds his way into this scene. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, uh, are 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 taking. Uh, it's actually a really arresting image. Uh, uh, Bill Murray's yeah. ventriloquist dummy, and he's sort of. It's a funeral procession for the Federal mm-hmm. Theater Project, and it and it it shifts from 1930s New York right into yep. the what was contemporary Times Square, Broadway. Yeah. And I think that I remember thinking that was a direct commentary on. At the time, Giuliani had a very big mm-hmm. the big scandal. Do you remember this? Where I there was the, I, there I, was I this painting. Uh, I remember it. Remember the with, Jesus, the with Jesus the with the dung? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was a, a deal. It was a depiction of Christ made mm-hmm. out of dung. The the, 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 the material. Yes. <laughs> shit, dung. <laughs> whatever, whatever you prefer. Excrement. Excrement. Yeah. Uh, and I and I I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but I believe it was supposed to be like the Virgin Mary and, and Jesus and and the the paint, the materials were 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 feces. Um, and Giuliani took that as a, and then many people were up in arms and they were, you know, okay. of course, as it always is misinterpreting what the artist was going for. And I can't remember if the painting, what I can't remember is it was either that it was banned from a museum or an exhibition in New York or, or something, but the, but the, but the painting was taken away it or was. taken out of some kind of exhibit. And it was a really big deal at the time. It was a big it was deal. A really I mean, it big was deal because it's yeah. the kind of thing you could put on the cover of uh, the New York post without much context yes. and get people really riled up about it, yeah. which is the most dangerous yeah. kind of New York thing. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and at the time, like Giuliani was doing a lot of these things, right? Giuliani was doing a lot of like yes. little And he was cleaning things. up Times Square. Yeah. Was... Bullshitty yeah. things that like, yeah. you know, in that should have let us know. Yeah. Oh no, he's the worst. Yeah. He, like, yeah. He's right? the fucking world's worst. Uh, even then, well, two years later, he became a hero. Two years later, everyone was like, "Oh, he's America's mayor." But yeah, yeah. because he was there. I mean, whatever. But <laughs> right, no shit. But uh, yes, yes, that was that was yeah. a big issue, and that was one of those things that was, as a defender of the arts, that was really where you had to plant your flag. You know, you you had yeah. to stand up and say this is valid and okay, yeah. and it doesn't matter if you like it or not. Right. You know, yeah. it's not right. what we're doing here. But yes, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that pretty vividly. And I think I, I don't remember. I don't remember if he talked about this in interviews or if I just interpreted when I saw it interpreted that. But I have a very vivid memory of when it became modern day New York thinking to myself, oh, he's talking about the, the Jesus shit painting right now um, or 
add in whatever kind of censorship you want to add. It's, it's, um, a, it's a very yeah. powerful image because it of is. the fact that it can speak on many levels, right? Like whether or not that, whether or not that was the issue that he was necessarily pointing out or not, um, it's just... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's kind of all you could ask for in a final shot of a movie, right? Which is that it leaves you chewing on something. Yeah, it's it very leaves you yeah. thinking about the previous two hours and 15 minutes that you've watched and, and ruminating on all the things that this movie had to say. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I also just – you talk about it at the, the actual cinematography component of it. This movie is very well shot. Yes, that, yes, opening, that opening yeah. shot – of Emily Watson Excellent. holding on her while she gets dressed behind this movie screen. Then the camera mm-hmm. follows her through the through like through the bowels of this theater. You get yeah. to see all this behind the scenes backstage stuff into the street. Like it, it's it's a really like it's it's kind of a thesis shot. It's a shot where he's like, I'm fucking going for it's it. It's definitely uh, look here we are, folks. Like it is definitely a statement about himself as a filmmaker, uh, but not not so distractingly so that you don't really get totally. into it. And totally. the way the way he shoots the final um, uh, scene where the actors get up and, and perform mm-hmm. uh, the sh- is, is really, really well done. Yeah, I, but undercut by when they, they cut away. They cut away to Diego yeah. Rivera and they cut away to Susan Sarandon and you wanna, you're like, no, 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 no. Show me the show more or less in real time. Like, wouldn't That's one thing that Topsy Turvy does incredibly well. I mean, Topsy Turvy's a three and a half hour long movie. It doesn't feel three and a half hours long. But and his face but, just fell. No, no, no. You'll love it. You'll love it, Kenny. But <laughs> But Topsy Turvy shows you uninterrupted those fucking Gilbert and Sullivan yes, yes. songs, but but they're they're wonderful, and you you can you you don't even have to like Gilbert and Sullivan Gilbert to appreciate Sullivan. it. Because, Can't wait. Oh, well, then you'll be fine. You're gonna but, love it. You're gonna I do love it. But, but you've been Sullivan. you've been through the journey with the actors through yes, the rehearsal did, process yeah. in this film, so that when you're watching scenes from the Mikado completely out of context, you're invested because you're invested in those characters and in that process. Well, so um, yeah, anyway, it's, he it's thinks well, it's he thinks it's crescendoing, right? He thinks that yeah. this cross cutting between all this stuff that it he's doesn't. played piping yeah. for, but it doesn't actually do yeah. that. Well, and if anything, it actually undercuts the the fucking play. Well, what's interesting is I, yeah. I, I assume Brian. I mean, even before you saw this twenty years ago, you knew what happened at cre- the initial performance of Credible Rock. Uh, I knew, yeah. I mean, not in detail, but there, I'd heard. I think I must have heard the story that that yeah, Orson Welles and John Houseman did this. They were forced out of their theater and the actors. And then there's a lot of there's a lot of dispute as to whether or not the movie definitely. And it's it, it's appropriate. It's better for a movie. The movie posits that they never discussed uh, doing the show from the audience and that Olive did it of a road accord and it all organically sprung up. The truth is 
a little more. I think Wells, most people, by most accounts, Wells had an idea to, to do that. The equity, the more established actors who really aren't in the movie, um, there were some more established members in the cast that they don't, they, John Turturro's character, for instance, is a fake character. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual leading man was Howard De Silva, who is a pretty well-known actor. Um, they thought, he thought that they might perform, but the WPA poorer actors probably wouldn't. And then Olive did stand up, essentially giving permission to everybody to do what Wells suggested. Mm-hmm. So, but I think Robbins makes a good dramatic choice to make it her, you know, entirely her inspiration. But I mean, I, I, I think it yeah. worked really well. And, and the point I was going to make is I had no idea. Zero. Oh, that's cool. So I did not know what to expect in that last scene. So I guess this speaks to why we kind of came at that last scene differently, which is uh, it was kind of it was kind of, you know, sitting around like, you know, like a like a four, like a like a five talking about volume for me. And then all of a sudden this kind of miraculous thing happened and shook me, you know, and really got me. And, you know, it's one of those things where. I don't even remember that they cross cut. I don't even remember that we left to go to oh, the other that's characters. Cool. That's I just, that's I felt like I just wanted to see who's going to stand up next. I wanted to see what they mm-hmm. were going to do. I wanted to see what they were, how they were going to stage it. I wanted to see how they like things like, how do you do it in such a way where you, you know that Tim Robbins had to block this, but the characters yeah. didn't yeah. block this. Like things yeah. like that. Yeah. I thought it was, I thought Hank Azaria was awesome in the, in, in this stuff. He's great. He's so, great in the movie. Yeah. yeah he's I great. Really, so I really yeah. truly was, was, was taken by the end of, uh, of the movie. Uh, I don't remember the bigger point I was going to make, but that was, that was kind of <laughs> why I do think no, I really cool. love the end of it. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, it's a great story. And, and it, in fact, there's only one aspect of, how Robbins decided to stage it that that bugs me, but it's only it only bugs me because I know the truth is uh, <laughs> he has he has all of the musicians in the audience to get up and do the orchestrations, which didn't happen. He, it, it really was just Blitzstein and the piano and the actors right. and and one accordion player, one accordion player got up, and I wish he kept that. I think I think though to the point we made earlier that he was wanting to make a bombastic kind of movie. He probably felt, oh, there's, I need more instruments. I need more orchestrations. But th- that's kind of the point is that it was just the piano. That's the one thing that bugs me is when the clarinetist gets up and it's like, what, he brought his clarinet? This, so this movie <laughs> isn't quite, this movie yeah. isn't, isn't a particularly beloved movie, but I do think it falls into a similar, there, there's a, a little phenomenon when there's a movie that is about something that some audience members know better than the people who are in it or the people who are even making it. For instance, for me, arguably, yeah. I think you know more. But for me, uh, that movie is Moneyball. Like Moneyball oh. always dri- drives me nuts for the baseball shit, right? Like, right, right, right. I like I'm a I'm a baseball nerd, or I was at the time. And when the Moneyball stuff was going down, I was working for the Mets. Like this was this was my life. And there is no world where people give a shit about an in-season 27-game win streak. That is not a win. Not only that, that's not, <laughs> that's, like, that means nothing. Not only that, like yes. that's not what the movie is about. 
Like you don't, right. that is not, I mean, that's not what the story's about. And to, and to your point, I had no idea about any of that shit when I watched right. Moneyball. Because, I was like, because yeah. I'm yeah, like, I exa- that, yeah. and that's, that's the, that's the clarinetist, yeah. right? Cause I'm sitting yeah. there, but, <laughs> I, that's my version of the clarinetist. I'm sitting there being like, absolutely. This isn't real. Nobody would care about this. Like win the world series. I know what baseball is, <laughs> you know, but like, it doesn't matter you, because they just tell you it's important. Therefore it's important. So something like that yes, like absolutely. goes right over my head, but I completely <laughs> understand like i'm never gonna i'm never going to be on any podcast in the world and tell you i think Moneyball is a great movie because it will always <laughs> it will always do that thing to me where i'm like yes yeah. but and that's my problem not sorkin's problem or you know sure or who directed sure. it well the, clar- the clarinetist didn't uh, engender quite as much passion the clarinetist didn't quite affect me clearly the way that Moneyball. <laughs> Uh, it was more of a pet. More of a yeah, pet peeve. it's that. And there's um, one other, oh, eat what? Actually, I on, on rewatch didn't bother me so much, but when I first saw any given Sunday, there's a football thing in it that I'm just like, that's not real. That could never happen. <laughs> no, what are you guys doing? So, but uh, I got over. Yeah, it. That's, yeah, and, and you could say that's, that about that's, uh, you know, that's literally uh, that was my stepfather. Every time I made him watch ER, he's a dog. Oh sure. Oh yeah. What? Yeah, none, none of this, none of yeah. this, none of this, right? So you know, sometimes, yeah. sometimes it, it's very. Remember when we were going to do a second ER episode for a second? We were like, you yeah. know, maybe, maybe the great audience, expectations. Maybe your <laughs> listeners need two more hours of us talking about ER. So, is are there? You didn't get enough movie, then. and I guess Topsy Turvy is the answer for you, Brian. But something that really yeah. works for something you're like obsessive about, something that feels like it's made yeah. for an obsessive. Yes, that, and then there's a television series called Slings and Arrows. That's a Canadian television series about a about a classical repertory company. Mm-hmm. That that oh, you've got it. That is uh, wonderful. Rachel McAdams was on it just before she hit big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it Sarah is. Pauly. It's a three se- a three season series about a struggling theater company. Each season uh, covers the production of one Shakespeare play. And it's it's the other kind of best. I actually find it painful to watch because I because I miss the theater yeah. so much and I miss doing it. Good feeling. Um, and it's hard for me to watch that show because it gets it so right and it gets it gets the joys of it and the and the and and of course the lows and um, because I I, ter- I miss acting. I don't miss being an actor at all. I wasn't very I wasn't good at being an actor. I'm a very good actor, but I wasn't good at being a professional sure. actor. Um, so I don't miss that, but I, I really the miss the stability of writing. I get it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I decided to go into the writer producer in Hollywood mode. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, but I, I, uh, I'm stirred by movies and shows that really nail that. And, and Cradle Rotten has a few moments that do that. When, when, when Emily Watson first sings in her little audition in a completely invented scene, Olive Stanton wasn't a stagehand. He adds the plot of 42nd street in there, but <laughs> why not? You might as well. Uh, um, but it's a beautiful bit. And I love that Emily Watson isn't really much of a singer doing it. I think yes, that's, yes, that's kind yeah. of nice. When you listen to the Patti Lapone recording, you go, Oh shit, this is an incredible song. You don't quite get that with Emily Watson, but that said, it's the sort of tremor in her voice is, is very moving. Um, she's she's phenomenal, but um, yeah. but yeah, I think I think the the movie that this really and I, I hate I hate doing this. Like this is how I would have written it, but I'll do it anyway. The I think if you'd kept um, a good chunk of the Cherry Jones Federal Theater Project stuff and then focused on the rehearsal of the play, 
that would have scratched all the itches he wanted to scratch in a more cohesive way. Because I think you would, as a viewer, want to see the outside forces that are shutting this thing down to a degree and see that through Hallie Flanagan yeah. and her botched testimony. Because that seems very effective with Harris Eulin as the senator and him trying to you know grill her. If you kept that stuff and her kind of she was tenuous incredible. relationship with Houseman yeah. and Wells and then really focused in on that company, and then you could have gotten to know more of the actors in the company – Another L.A. insight. Have you guys ever been to Theatricum Botanicum in Topanga? No, no. Okay, very briefly. There's this crazy theater called Theatricum Botanicum. It's an outdoor theater that's in Topanga Canyon. It's been there forever. It's been there since the 60s. And they do like eight shows a year. And it's this incredible outdoor space. And uh, it's been there forever. And it was started by uh, this dude, Wheel Gear, and his family. Um, Wheel Gear, uh, it was a member of the ensemble uh, of, of Cradle of Rock. Back in the day, um, I believe he's represented in the movie as the guy screwing that girl and getting her pregnant um, in that in that bizarre non subplot where you know uh, he's there, remember they there's there's two cat remember. members that are screwing in the balcony and then oh. four months later she's about to have a baby oh, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it's only in the background you see them fighting like they're breaking yeah. up and then it doesn't work um, but that's. But if you're if LA fans, LA theater fans, if this ever happen, if theater ever happens again, go to Theatricum Botanicum. To, to go your, see them in some night stream. To your point about getting to know the ensemble better, um, yep. this is a very basic note and the kind of note that that someone might have just laughed at and thrown out. But sometimes I do think it does it does help to make things a little more basic. And this is essentially a sports movie setup. They practice, practice, practice. Sure. Then they have the big game. And in every yeah. in every sport yep. movie, uh, you you start down three to four goals or three to four runs, and everybody has <laughs> their chance to shine. And the reason it the reason it feels good is because you know these people and you know what they've been through. But the only people yeah. we really know are Totoro and uh, and Emily Watson. The other five yes. people, including the old man who has a particularly you know kind of tender, poignant moment, you don't know much about going into that performance, and that. Mm-hmm. may have made it a a more simplistic kind of movie, you know, movie for morons like me, but I know it but would have worked better. It would have worked better. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, he stocked that company with great uh, Broadway musical theater actors like Victoria Clark and Tim Jerome, who if, if you're a if you're me, you know by, na- by, by their name on site when they pop up in <laughs> an ensemble role in a movie, um, which I get. He wanted to probably prop up Totoro and Watson with kind of real, you know, yeah. uh, bona fide musical theater actors. But I agree, Kenny. Yeah. I, I uh, um, you know, I mean, maybe someone will do it. I mean, I, I, I would, it would be really fun if someone got a hold of that Orson Welles screenplay and shot it. I mean, they seem to be doing that kind of stuff with his stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, but that, but which leads me to the point, which is of course they won't because no one's ever making this movie. <laughs> 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 like this was the shot. <laughs> Um, yeah. And that does make me lament the state of, I mean, it's such a tired thing to be like, the state of the movies, the state of, but it really, we didn't know what we had when, 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 when Disney could release this movie with this budget, with about this subject matter. Um, and I guess the fact that it bombed didn't help <laughs> sure. ever doing but something it, like this again. Yeah. But man, I, I'm glad it exists. I really, you know, and and it was I, fun to watch and have the thoughts provoked, even if the movie isn't entirely successful. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was watching it with a similar sort of this is a miracle this thing got made. I'm surprised yeah. this got made. Um, it does, again, as we said earlier, it does feel like a blank check. It does feel like he he just went all in with every bit of clout that he had off of Dead Man Walking yeah. to get this made, which is commendable. Yeah. Um, you know, I, one of the things that I kind of wish the movie had more of, honestly, was the magic realism that they did with, with Glitzstein. Yeah, because it's I, effective I, in its small doses. It, I yeah, it was yeah. effective, but it also just felt like it needed, and I know this sounds maybe perhaps silly to say, but more theatricality. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of needed to break outside of its own kind of, and it chose those moments to do it, and they were fine, but it could have had more of right. it. Um, you know, listen. It, it's well, and, and because you don't really know who they are. I mean, you know that yeah. he's, you know that he's a homosexual that was married, and he has some affection for his dead wife, and that's it. And that there she is, and and he's haunted by Brecht, I guess. Because Brecht is sort of who he aspires to be, but oh, yeah. I frankly, right. I think, yeah, but that's it, you know. And then they sort of pop up here and there, and yeah, yeah. Anyway, but it, it I wanted to before we before we go, I, I I wanted to get on a little bit of a soapbox for a second, if that's Please, okay, absolutely. Because this is the, the the thinking about the Federal Theater Project when watching this really got me thinking a lot about what a, a lot of my friends and colleagues from the theater world. Which you know, look, I haven't been a I haven't been a part of in so long. Um, who are struggling a lot right now, and uh, if if we're nostalgic for a time where a movie like this could get made, think about the fact that the that there was a time in this country when the federal government had a plan to subsidize artists and valued them for that brief shining moment as people doing work as actual. Because I'll tell you what, I'm going to read a really very short quote from the New York Times a few a few weeks ago when talking about um, the next round of the pandemic stimulus. Very brief. Quote, hands are out as Congress is set to begin negotiating a new round of pandemic stimulus. Airlines, hotels, restaurants, military contractors and banks, even Broadway actors. <laughs> and- <laughs> Actors and theater actors in particular are still thought of by the general populace, certainly by the writer of this fucking arg- of this article and absolutely by the, by the government as dilettantes, as people who are lucky enough to do their hobby and their real job is a waiter. And if they have one, if they have, if they can do that. And, um, and it's an, it's an absurd and offensive viewpoint if anything has been proven in this uh, pandemic of the last few months is how much all of us uh, need and value art because the art has what's gotten us is, is what's gotten us all through this, <laughs> uh, the television we're watching in the films, but the theater is for obvious reasons, particularly hard hit. Um, and there is the first thing that is not funded. The first thing that is kept from funding in any way, shape or form in good times or bad is is arts funding. So um, there is an organization I wanted to make the readers, the listeners aware of, which is called be an arts hero. It's be an arts hero.com all one word. And it just gives you a lot of great information. It's a grassroots organization. Um, It gives you a lot of information about not only what dire straits the theater world uh, is in right now, but also what they contribute to the culture, what they contribute to the economy. um, And, how letting it die out now will do irreparable harm, not just culturally, but also economically. And uh, it has like a petition you can sign to senators to 
um, help get stimulus for, for the arts and all kinds of information about how to get involved. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in this stuff to, to look at that because, um, will you send me the link to that as well, Brian? So we can, yeah, I will. Yeah. For the, yeah. For the, for the show notes, do you have show notes? Um, and I will tweet about it, but, um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk, to talk about that because, you know, we're, these these forces that are represented by Harris Eulin Senator in those Cherry Jones scenes uh, are are alive and well and Jesus they're 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 running, running the show right yeah. now. So, um, anyway, yeah, it's I mean it's 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 a it's I mean listen it's a scary time for in a in a myriad of ways obviously but um, you know when I think about the things that I love not getting funded like theater or musicians or whatever the case might be, the arts are, are so fundamentally important. You said it beautifully earlier, but like it is getting me through this. Yeah. It is getting us all through this. Um, and we, we do not give nearly enough credence and nearly enough of our, honestly, of our money, support, whatever it takes in order to keep those things alive. But it's also because yeah, of absolutely. what Roger Ebert said in his review, which is there hasn't been yeah. a right-wing theater since the, since the ancient Greeks. They don't want to hear what we have to say. Like that... Well, that's for sure. That's a yeah. big part of this too. If, 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 it's true. for lack of a better, for lack of a better person, if everybody fit the mold of Clint Eastwood, I don't think we would have this same problem. If Broadway was nothing but, but, you know, odes to Reagan and Bush and Nixon and whoever else, I don't think we would have this issue. I think they would love that because I I know this because every totalitarian fascist government funded the arts. They just funded propaganda, right? Sure. They, oh, yeah. they, they People understand how powerful this stuff is, but in a country with free speech and free expression, you can't dictate what we do, but you can cut the funding that the, you know, the National Endowment for the Arts or other, program, other uh, government programs are supposed to are, are, are set up to are designed to promote arts because yeah so i i do think that you know i think everything you said i agree with it's valid i think it's more dangerous than than, than that even i think it's i think it is a, a genuine attempt to clamp to, to, to clamp down on free expression because it does not jive with the message those in power want out there. Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, Kenny and I, before we recorded this episode, Brian, we just did an episode on Rage Against the Machine. Oh, oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so, so I'm, in a, I'm in a real radical place anyway right now. <laughs> yeah. Bring it down. <laughs> but, but, to, but to my point, it, it just goes to show how unbelievably powerful the, uh, the arts are. And oh, how yeah. they are a, a rallying cry, how quickly they can they can get people mobilized and doing things. And mm-hmm. to Kenny's point, fascists understand that. Sure. <laughs> um, and I'm, I, I don't doubt that the Republican Party fully understands it as well right now. But um, but we have to do everything in our power to make sure that, you know, when we come out of this thing, that all of these various art forms have uh, all the funding that they that they rightfully. Yeah. And we and we can't we can't. As people who don't feel that way, can't we can't drink the Kool Aid? We can't we can't write even actors. It's like no, <laughs> you know, it's like not all like most actors are not paid the way Tom Cruise is. Friends, right. you know, uh, Broadway actors are barely make enough, you know, and that's the best gig you can get. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful to have rewatched this movie at right now. It was the Same. absolute right time for to revisit it, and while it's still not. A, a favorite um 
it's it's it, it got me reading about this stuff. It got me listening to the to the old recording. Like it, it spurred a lot of thought and research, and and just for that alone, I think it's it's got tremendous value. I also just want to say for for what it's worth, I, I think that I think there's a movie that could be peeled off of this if it was more Orson focused or whatever mm-hmm. the case might be at a lower budget that I still think could get made today. I think yeah. it would have to just have a much more lasered in perspective on something. Yeah. And I think it would have to come from, quite frankly, more of an auteur. But mm-hmm. I do think that um, I'm not I'm not ready to say that no version of this world could be explored. Or, or oh, and hey, wait, maybe we should get off mic and pitch this to our agents. But because <laughs> uh, it just it just made me think of this is is that one sort of the one of the gags of the movie and it's it's based in truth is that Wells wanted to this absurd big bombastic staging for the piece and that's, yeah. that's true um and and only by this circumstance did the piece emerge mm-hmm. as it really was meant to be heard and it's interesting that robbins without realizing it fell into wells's trap he made a big as you said <laughs> earlier kenny yes. glossy extravaganza yes. when a film you could do a movie about the making of cradle of rock mm-hmm. in a Brechtian, pared down, stylized yeah. way, you know, not unlike the eventual production of Cradle of Rock, you know, like uh, the movie, the movie, uh, what's the movie with the, uh, Nicole Dogville? Yeah, Dogville. I thought about uh, Lars von Trier as like you were that. talking there too. Something yeah, like yeah. that that is very theatrical and yeah. very experimental, very much a film because yeah. you can only capture it with a camera. That's yeah. I think that's the way to do and, it and, now. You know, shot digitally as opposed to yeah, shot. Like, like there are ways grassroots. to do this. Make it feel like a grassroots and, and with yeah. and with actors it, who the, don't you know who well, no one knows. I mean, how much of this budget went to yeah, putting a name in every role? So yeah, I will yeah. say, and just Quibi will buy it tomorrow, right? Quibi, <laughs> Quibi will. Yeah. I'm so yeah, perfect. For Quibi. I'm so old. <laughs> I was going to be like, now you guys remember there was a movie, uh, Me and Orson Welles. That, yes. Oh, yeah. The Linklater, the Linklater movie. movie. That actor's very good who plays He is, Wells. and he looks just like him. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's that movie was made 12 years ago, which is fucking insane. I was going to yeah. – Wow. I w- that movie is yeah. closer to Cradle Rock than it is to now. <laughs> but Yep. Um, yep. But weirdly, 2008 seems a lot closer – this 2008 media climate seems a lot closer to right now Correct. than it does to 99. Sure. And I do yep. think that when I looked it up, that movie was made for 23 million and, and made two. So we might be talking about a movie that yeah. made for 12 million now, but yeah. you can, yeah, we gotta go low. yeah, you can put a movie like this on HBO if it's really good. Yeah. And I think people would watch it. Well, boys, I think I've got my next project. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to call. Yeah. Did you say, well, boys, well, Casey, well, boys. He's on- Casey is on my speed dial. <laughs> Do you remember speed dial? Very, I know that was a 1999 <laughs> reference right there. Jesus. I, the second I said that, I was like, well, that's a dated joke. <laughs> so um, do you want to rate this movie, Kenny? Uh, yeah, I do. You want me to do it? Uh, I, I didn't see it in 99. Brian, you did see this in 99. Yes. So the rating that we do on this show is we, we rate it if we saw it in 99. What it would be from zero to ninety nine, zero being the lowest, ninety nine being the highest, fifty being the threshold for recommending. Then we rate it before we recorded this podcast and after 
if the podcast changed your opinion in one way or another. Gotcha. So, Kenny, do you want to go first? Sure. And then we'll, we'll... I didn't watch this movie in 99, but I did watch this movie in 2019. Because we <laughs> were going to do it in 2019. Yeah. And one thing happened or something happened and it never happened. So I did watch. Oh, is that, oh, is that right? Oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm your, I'm your second. Uh, yes, you are, really, you're really you are, you are actually our third choice, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> everyone was like, please. And it should be said, I'm going to out you guys. I, 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 I said, let's do Cradle of Rock. And I hear nothing for like two weeks. And I was like, <laughs> Do you want to do another movie? <laughs> That's exactly what we thought. I was just like, is there another one? I was movie? Like, and I was like, well, you gave me the list. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, and then to your credit, I, I explained my, my thinking and you were in. It was because ultimately I, I didn't, I didn't know about, I know, I know, but I didn't know about your theater background, which, which right. just kind of like changed the whole, anyway. Right. So Kenny. Anyway, sorry, Kenny. Oh, 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 just, Brian, we're going to give you whatever you want. You came in and you said, Incredible <laughs> Rock and whoever we had lined up, we just, you know, we threw under the bus yeah, down like, a hill. I don't even know who it is. Frankly, it doesn't matter because it's fantastic, but we did. Uh, so I did, I watched it then and I, I truly deeply hated it. Now I watched it. <laughs> uh, I watched it on my computer sitting in my office in three parts um, because, you know, for your second, viewing. For my first viewing. So first I was viewing, like, yeah. I was working through it. It was so long. I couldn't get into it because of the circumstances of my career at the point at that point. Sure. And, uh, and I hated it. I would have given it a 18 and 18. Uh, <laughs> I I I, re- I love it. Brian, Brian knows you so well, Kenny. Oh, I would have given that movie I watched on my laptop in three different uh, uh, settings. But eighteen, that's right. Shame. So that's Shameful. my first view. My first number is an eighteen. Um, okay. My second viewing happened all in one piece on an actual that's television, and uh, and I, Yay, I liked it significantly more. Um, and this is all I said. Uh, it's indulgent, overly simplistic. Ends very well, though. I can't tell someone to see this. It's so boring for the first hour and 45 minutes. Cut, <laughs> cut 45 minutes, focus on the play. It could have been fantastic. I'm giving it a 46, which is about as high as I can go without telling someone to see wow. it. Wow. So oh, okay. 46, wow. which I think is which I right. think is pretty good. Okay. Okay, I, we, we differ I, here. What about yeah, you? I, I'm I'm definitely closer to 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 you on this, Brian. I, I mean, I, I I didn't know really anything about this movie other than sort of like a cursory. I know it's about a play, whatever. Um, and it is slow, but I wasn't bored. Um, with the with the with the you know the preamble to the play itself. Um, as we've as we've discussed over the course of this episode, I think there are a lot of things that kept my attention, some more than others, and that it lacks focus, um, and that I wish that it had that. That being said, I'm at a sixty. I mean, I, I would recommend this to a person to watch. If if and and my metric for recommending or not recommending has always been the same, which is if someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, should I watch Cradle Rock?" and I'm like, "Well, are you inclined to?" and if they are, I'll be like, "Yeah, then watch it." I, I would and then, and then you should say, "Who are you, and why are you accosting me on the street?" <laughs> That's true. But, but my That's point more than anything is that I wouldn't, I wouldn't thrust it on a person and say, "You got to watch Cradle of Rock." I look at, it's a, right. I look at mine as more of a thrust, Phil. I, that would be. I, I, I always think of it. I, more thrust, of a thrust. I thrust this on both of you, didn't I? 
<laughs> no, no. I mean, listen, we were going to watch it eventually. It wasn't a matter of like. I was like, look, you can watch it. I mean, you're going to. It's on your list, yeah. guys. It's going to have to. You're going to have to. You're not going to save it for the series finale. Um, so 60 would be your. I think. And I, after this podcast, I'm. I would actually say I've gone slightly higher. I'm at a 63 on this. Um, I bumped you up three points. <laughs> three points. I just because I do think that it was a. It was. First of all, obviously, I love this episode. I, I love talking with you about anything, Brian. So that's oh, that's that, that's that's moot. So Ultimately, glad. I just think that this is the type of movie that could. It's a could have been. Yes, it's ultimately what it comes down to. Sure. Um, with this cast, with this subject matter, with this money, um, ultimately, uh, I think a better movie could have come out of it. But yeah. You know, 60, 65. I'll say 65. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm definitely higher on it than you guys. I would have, uh, in 1999, when I saw it, I would have, I would have still said 55. Okay. okay. I would have still recommended it if someone, you know, wanted, because it ultimately I was, I was interested in the subject matter and, and I remembered liking certain aspects of it. Sure. Didn't really care for it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone I wouldn't have gone even then so far as to say, oh, awful. I, I, you know, now and then watching it the other day, I got to tell you, I'm I'm up to. Well, is this is this graded like letter grades are like 70s a C and 80s a B? And no, it's not that, thought okay. about it that way. But I would I would say 100, mm, <laughs> 77. All right. That's how Yeah, sure. And then even after talking about it, I'll bump it up to 80. Let's bump oh, it wow. up to 80. All right. Because really, while I think it's flawed in a bazillion ways that we've discussed ad nauseum, yeah. uh, I, I did find it really enjoyable. It got me thinking and f- about a lot of stuff. And, uh, and I, I really am giving – it's probably getting, getting an extra five points simply for the, what we've talked about, the fact that, that you're not going to see its like again. And I, I mourn, yeah. I mourn the days when there was a cornucopia of subject matters at your multiplex, and um, so, so yeah, I'm going to say eighty. I'm going to say eighty. Well, I, and I, I want to piggyback on that for one quick second and just say, you know, obviously Kenny and I are big fans of the podcast Blank Check, which I don't know if you listen to, but if you do, oh yeah, well, yes, I have a little bit. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, great. they're yeah. fantastic. And this to me, like, this is a quintessential Blank Check. Like, this is literally taking oh, yeah. the cloud of an Academy Award and translating that into a big budget movie. Um, this to me goes in the category of a noble failure. Um, yes, I, I, think- I, I think that I think that everything that that this movie strives for is worthy. You know, we've just talked about, you know, any number of political, social activism, any number of things that this film is trying to tackle. And God bless it for trying to tackle these things. Um, So in that regard, that alone makes it worthy of of people to see, I think, Mm -hmm. Um, even if it doesn't, obviously. That's why I I mean, the the, the nobility is what gets it to a 46. But (laughs) I but I, I, I can't I can't. Give a rec. I can't give a passing grade for good intentions, and I think I think that that's that I harsh. Great work in this movie, We're man. Done. There's a lot of who hurt great, you, Kenny? Who hurt? Yeah, that's not a great two hours, twenty minutes. I, I'm so nervous for Topsy Turvy, but I, I oh Topsy Turvy, I will love I just I think you're gonna love it. I think because I'll tell you what, Topsy Turvy is purely about the process. 
and these are these are artists, and they're artists working their asses off on something silly, and that's what's I, wonderful which about I, which it. Which sounds great. I do want to connect this to one other movie we've done, which I meant to do earlier, but a movie that works really well. Granted, a little stronger writer than this movie, um, Midsummer Night's Dream has a very similar. A little stronger writer. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, has a bit of the same structure, and if you if you remember what the thing I loved about that particular that particular production of Midsummer Midsummer's Night Dream was that the play at the end was played straight, which it's never yes. it's never played straight. You know, I've never seen it played straight, and I've seen it several times. Uh, and it was so powerful, but it's just the the unexpected kind of turn. Now, they managed again. It's William Shakespeare, but he manages to make you care about everybody who's in the production of yeah, Pyramus and Thisbe, and yes. all the other people, the lovers and the fairies, because he's the best ever. But so it's it, it's not a fair comparison. But there is there was something to that. In I, I think sorry guys, I think that well could yeah. Be, what's funny is that yes, you're right. That movie does a very good job of, uh, with the mechanicals. Yeah. Um, actually the last role I ever played on the stage was Peter Quince in oh, a Midsummer really? Night's Dream. Um, yeah, the, the, the director of the play within the play, but, um, but yeah, they do a really good job with that, with that particular subplot in that, in that movie. I agree. And you, and you do, you do really care at the end. About I think them. it's, you know, not to, not to belabor the point on terms of theater and all that sort of stuff, but I will say that I had this, um, I, I, you might have even seen it, Brian. On Twitter, I posted a poll as to like who has the best Hamlet. Oh no! I missed. How did I miss this poll? <laughs> I did a poll of who was the best Hamlet. Oh, uh, I, think, I think I said uh, Ethan Hawke, Kenneth Branagh, Laurence Olivier, Mel Gibson. Okay, um, those were the four that I picked. best movie uh, or best performance. Um, oh, I think I might have said best movie. If I'm not mistaken, okay. wait, wait, did Ethan okay. Hawke direct a Hamlet? No, but he's, he's in, in it. a Hamlet. But all the other three so, directed and played Hamlet, right? Uh, Gibson didn't direct it. It was uh, Franco Zeffirelli. Yeah. yeah. Um, long story short, it started a, a you know a discussion. People were some people were up in arms. Uh, a lot of people had other. I mean, they're obviously like Hamlet, you know, Lion King stands and all that kind of stuff. But my my point is that someone said that Lion King was the best Hamlet. Someone did say. Oh, well, fuck that. Anyway, yeah. um, but my, <laughs> it's Twitter, dude. It's a it's a dumpster fire. True. But but hey, you're the more one than anything. Question on it, man. Well, because I was curious because I wanted to I wanted to watch a Hamlet and I was like, right. what what should which Hamlet should I watch? Um, point being, I think that translating theater to film is tough. Um, it, it's it's just it, it always feels kind of tricky. Kenny obviously brought up Midsummer Night's Dream, which I found myself surprisingly taken with, mm-hmm. um, considering I didn't think it was I just didn't really have any expectations of it really at all. Mm-hmm. Um and and it is interesting to see that I think I'm more invested in movies about the making of theater than mm. I am theatrical adaptations to the screen. I, I'm trying. Like, yeah. you know I have. Uh, I I I I love I love both. It's funny. Uh, well, I have two two things. One, have you ever seen a Midwinter's Tale? No. Okay, it's a Kenneth Branagh movie about a small group of actors production putting on a, a community theater. Uh, production of Hamlet. Uh, you'd love it. It's a wonderful, very humane comedy, black and white, uh, lovely movie. He made it the year before he made his big Hamlet 
film. Um, I think you'd, that's another really good movie about the theater, but I, I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, and yes, uh, uh, you, you will enjoy my next appearance on screen drafts. Let's just say, okay. all right, it might, it might just touch on this very subject. Okay. What about Shakespeare and film? We did so. a, we did our top five Shakespeare's of Joanna Robinson on that too. What, uh, uh-huh. what did you want? What one? And what did you wind up picking? What, what, what's the question? Right. What one? The Hamlet? To? And what did you wind up picking? Oh, Oh yeah. Uh, what won the poll, yeah. Did you wind up watching? What is was my question? Wa- I, I have not watched it yet. And I believe Gibson won, um, oh. the, the poll. I can't, I, I can't, I can't offer my opinion because of possible future screen drafts episodes. But. No, that's fair. I, <laughs> and I would, I would not want you to, to incriminate yourself. I'll yeah. say this. Uh, the reason seemed to be that they felt like Zeffirelli did the best job, even if Gibson is obviously problematic and hard to watch now. Um, they well, felt sure. that – and Brana's is like four and a half hours long. Yeah, well, Bron- <laughs> yeah Bron- Bron- <laughs> is uncut. Yeah. yeah, he decided, uh, yeah. To, stage, and, and he I decided think that, to stage Hamlet as opposed to the other people. I like. Yes. I mean, even even people who do the play don't. They even the people who do the play cut it. Like he. Yeah. Well, and I think that the other the other tipping factor was um, a lot of people preferred Helena Bonham Carter's Ophelia to Kate Winslet's Ophelia. Mm-hmm. Um, for again, for what that's worth. Um, but yeah, it's it's yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's it's. I'll say this though: what it did make me do was watch the "to be or not to be" monologue from the Ethan Hawke version. Oh. which I don't. Do you remember that scene? Mm-hmm. What they do in the movie? He's in a blockbuster, yep. and it's a and it's a voiceover of him walking around right. giving that speech. Yeah, I remember. Again, can't <laughs> offer can't offer my opinion because yeah, no, no, the I, future, I, uh, I don't want you. But, uh, but no, it, it, I will say it's a, it's a very. You're absolutely right. It's a tricky. A tricky thing to 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 take a piece of theater and especially a piece of classical theater um, uh, and and realize it on film as it is a very tricky thing to uh, uh, convey the artistic process the creation of something on a film films about writers yeah. films about artists more often than not they don't succeed because that is and you guys are artists and so you can relate that is an intensely internal personal thing and realizing it in in film it, when, when you when you can get it right it's exhilarating but it, yep. it's it's a tougher it's a tougher nut to crack for sure i i fully agree uh so next week we are doing and i don't know if you've seen this film brian but i'd be mm. curious if you have uh kenny and i alone no guest we are mm. doing the mod squad oh claire danes uh omar epps and uh giovanni God, rabisi, giovanni rabisi. <laughs> wow if any movie was 1999 <laughs> couldn't yeah. get a guest it's for it so weird <laughs> we couldn't get anyone to talk about the mob squad. Uh, I, I'm sure that we could have, but Kenny and I wanted to do one just, right. to, just the two of us. Uh, oh, that's fun. I have not seen the movie. No, oh, I, you I, are. I, yeah, you're. You're. I had no desire. I'm very excited yeah. to talk about it because it is, to your point, it is a perfect microcosm oh, of yeah. of the '90s and that moment when, and it happened again too, in like or or kept going that like old TV shows that our parents watched. Oh, that was that a got big turned thing. into movies. Oh, yeah. Now they're just going to turn into TV How many of them shows. worked? The only one that how worked many? was The Fugitive. Well, was I mean, it? That, that's an absurd statement. I'm, I'm sure a few more worked. <laughs> yeah, Dudley Do-Right like, like, worked. Oh. Everyone knows that. <laughs> Dudley Do-Right's like, fucking you know, great. Tom Arnold in McHale's Navy. Uh, Steve Martin in Sergeant Bilko. Um, 
The, yeah, they turned everything. Mr. Magoo? Didn't, was Mr. Magoo that with Leslie Nielsen. The yeah. Wild Wild West, which I know you've talked about. One word. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a it's not a it's not a great example because it's it's such an incredible adaptation. But uh, Brady Bunch worked so well. But, oh, that's I love it. Yeah, yeah but it just, that's the, yeah. I think that's the one that started the kind of meta commentary. It started version of and it. ended sure. in its own weird way because once it did, yeah, it, anyone else tried it, that? Was that anyone else tried that approach Bewitch with any tried it? Right. So Bewitch tried once. That was once a you, movie. Once you yeah. did that. It was over. Yeah. Like they just did yeah. it. They, yeah. they did it so well. And to do it again is, is anything yeah. on that. But Brady Bunch was incredible. Well, they tried like Starsky and Hutch. Oh, they yeah, tried they like Dukes of Hazard. Right, right. Which, right it's, like, it's a comedic oh. spoof of the show. You Another love. super right. successful one that did that and was also brilliant was 21 Drum Street. Right. Yeah. That's that, true. Yes. Yes. That's true. That but, yeah. it, but that went somewhere completely fresh and interesting and new with it. The fugitive is argue. I, I'd have to look it's at a list, but the only one that comes fugitive is the only one that comes to mind that yes. that transcended the show and actually, in many ways, improved upon it. And yeah. and you has no you can you can have just seen that movie and have no which I did connection. And it, yeah. yeah, and unilaterally yeah. is a movie that everyone can get on board with. It's yeah, hard yeah. to be like against yeah. the fugitive Oscar nominee and yeah. all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, the Mod Squad. Other, I mean, we'll run through all of them, but there must be other movies. That were done straight. We need to do our top five of those. At top the five TV to film adaptations. Yeah, but no, three three terrific actors, but uh, but but never. Oof. It never is. It's desire to see it. I had a pitch for a mod squad oh, that I actually went out so with to do years ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, are you being facetious? Yeah, I am. I I wasn't going to bring it up, but like I I know that this oh. this isn't just a movie to you. We, well, I'll say this. Uh, the movie had nothing to do with my pitch, really, whatsoever. Uh, in fact, I think I watched the movie after the pitch had gone silent. <laughs> okay. but, but long story short, um, I had a pitch, and I still think that the Mod Squad, at some point, we're going to see a version, a new version of the Mod Squad on television, some way or another. Yeah, well, um, yeah. It's, it's a right... Surprised they had yeah. Phil had the, uh, the correct version of a Mod Squad reboot. And anyone yeah, who does anything other than what Phil thought of uh, m- is missing the boat. <laughs> I'm positive. Yeah, I, don't, I, I was don't blown away. What you think of the movie? I mean, no one will listen to the episode. You know. Uh, uh, no, as soon as as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to tell you what it is because I'm I'm curious as to your thoughts on it, Brian. But sure. Long story short, um, I'm excited to watch this movie again. I'm excited to talk with Kenny about why it's pretty much an utter failure right. um and uh and next week uh, that's what we're doing so you guys cool. will see you then but thank you again for coming on brian oh uh, thanks for having me, you guys it was so much fun uh, catching up and and uh thank you for indulging my my uh my re my re-engagement with my theatrical past there was no indulgence whatsoever it was fantastic i i mean truthfully as we emailed about this brian uh, I was skeptical about this movie and doing an episode about it. Yes. Um, but as soon as you kind of opened up that Pandora's box and said like, oh, but I have this theater background. I was like, oh, this is, this will give us a perspective into this film that will, that will, and you proved that. Oh, so, good. You know, oh, I, good. I, I really can't thank you enough for coming on. Oh, my, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 